You're listening to episode 261 of the Room to Grow podcast. I'm Emily Goff, a human connection coach, speaker, and mental health advocate with an insatiable sense of curiosity and adventure, always asking more questions and using the power of stories to teach, learn, and grow. It's about allowing for room to grow, and this podcast focuses on three main pillars, human connection, personal growth, and freedom. We cover topics like relationships and cultivating genuine supportive connections with ourselves and others, speaking your truth, shattering personal barriers, radical self-acceptance, and courageously leaning into your skill sets. Whether it's a solo episode or bringing on highly curated guests with incredible stories, experiences, and expertise to share, we're leaning in and taking the entire idea of growth to the next level, all while still covering the uncomfortable topics that many of us like to avoid. There's always more room to grow. Let's do this. Hey there, welcome back to the Room to Grow podcast. Emily here, and today's extra special guest is Mira Greenfeld. And I'm a little bit of a super fan of Mira's. <laughs> and she is just an incredible human with a wide, very back, varied background and so much to teach. So Mira has worked as a lawyer and learned constitutional law while at Harvard Law School. She provides trainings to help so-called, you know, regular people <laughs> uh, promote social justice in their everyday setting. And she's a currently a racial trauma coach and practicing therapist, helping clients move from feeling wrong for who they are because of how they are different to living meaningful lives because they are living in harmony with their purpose. This is a really powerful episode, and we go into a huge amount in this one, including understanding racism as a legal and social construct with psychological impact, uh, empowerment and anti-racism in the mental health field, racial and intergenerational trauma, critical race theory, and unpacking allyship. There is a lot to talk about here. Um, to the point where it, it, we've decided that we may do a second part uh, of this one uh, next time, potentially with wine. <laughs> so there is just a huge amount to discuss. Um, one single podcast episode could never serve to unpack these issues, obviously. Um, but I hope that this gives you even just a a taste of of some of these issues, especially if if you are maybe new to unpacking some of these for yourself. Maybe you can uh, reach out to Mira, learn from her. She has all kinds of resources available as well. And she just brings so much incredible knowledge um, into everything that she does, particularly this, this podcast episode, just as one example. So I can't wait for you to get to know her, to listen, to learn, and to dive into this episode with us. I am so excited to have you on here, uh, Mira. Please introduce yourself because we connected in a business coaching group, uh, Rachel Rogers, and you put up a post introducing yourself and I literally typed underneath it, uh, I think you're superwoman and can we talk? <laughs> I think you're legitimately my first big super fan. Um, and I'm going to tell you from now, I really don't mind if you stalk me. It will be really so good for my ego. Listen, and we're connected on Voxer now, so you can't get rid of me now. I'm just going to keep coming at you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll brace myself. So um, tell us a little bit about you. Okay. So I'm not quite sure where to begin, but um, I had a, this is my fifth country and um, I'm a bit of a chameleon, I suppose. And I'm, uh, I started my, I'd say my main career as a lawyer and I was an attorney for about 
actually, I decided I'm not going to give years because I'm really dating myself. <laughs> I started very, very young. So um, some sort of prodigy, actually. But anyway, um, I was an attorney and uh, I've always had an interest um, in, in advocacy. And that, that was my reason for going to law school. Um, I've had a, a sort of a consistent record of uh, helping people in communities. I think that's also a family thing about giving back. Um, but that sounds very... I mean, I think very cliche, a lot of people say that. To be honest, I think I was just raised um, in a way where I was very much aware of um, other people and where I'm at. So um, I think I just had that sort of social consciousness as a matter of uh, probably just the family I come from. And I do enjoy it. I, th I think doing pro bono work and uh, being in communities helps keep you very real and authentic and in touch with real life. Uh, um, I don't actually have a TV. I really try to connect with real people and I really do enjoy connecting with people. Um, so I went, so I think actually that was some of the reason why I, well, you know, there's a lot of reasons why I decided to go back to school. I do love learning, um, but I became a psychotherapist. I think it was a number of events, including September 11th. I felt, I felt a bit powerless and I was so, I, there's just so many words and I get emotional to this day. I was really, I felt I saw the best of humanity as well as the worst, but I saw the best. And I, and of all places, I was in New York. I, I feel like I saw the best of Americans in New York. Um, they were strong, they were determined, they helped each other out. People were dropping on the sidewalk. And when I think about what the firefighters went through and their sacrifice, they had to know that it was dangerous and they were selfless. These are things that I hold on to when things get hard for me. Or I have a pity, par pity party about what's going on in the world. I remember that there's a lot of a lot of what's the best of humanity, and I'm not just saying it. It's what I've seen is in America, and that's what I really, I really want to fight for. You know, this is a. I still think this is the best country in the world. It has problems, but every single country does, and this country we can. I really think most people in America are good and um, they want the right thing. And I'd even say the ones that I think maybe are not so good really feel that they're doing the right thing, you know? So I'm really about creating opportunity for, for everyone. I, th I like the ideals of America and I'm just really about uh, equal access. So um, what, what's happened in this country, especially with COVID, George Floyd passing and how that really hit, hit a nerve. I really felt that and I felt that I wanted to use my abilities and strengths to help people. I can hear how passionate you are. I know how passionate you are about providing a service for people and, and really starting to make big change. I'd love for you to explain more about how you go about doing that. Certainly. <laughs> so I, most of my, I've been practicing psychotherapy for about seven years now. And most of my practice um, was centered on helping people struggling with addiction. And I found that um, I seemed to get the best results when I um, treated people from a trauma perspective. So I somehow shifted from being sort of a, uh, an addiction therapist to, to a trauma therapist. And I really um, feel that there's so much uh, that I gain looking at things from a trauma perspective because you sort of see how people's survival instinct gets triggered. And it really is at the center of feeling empowered when you have control over your body and you're not reactive, you know? So 
uh, I do a lot of work as a psychotherapist and um, I found that there actually aren't a lot of uh, minority uh, psychotherapists, much less therapists that do trauma work. And so my, my practice has um, shifted so that I'm actually uh, seeing a lot of people who are uh, from marginalized or oppressed groups. Um, uh, but there are different uh, economic levels, um, to be honest. Um, and I've been, so my practice has really shifted to um, a lot of focus on racial trauma and intergenerational trauma. And it's been, again, I'm all about the results. When I see people being able to shift and have that sort of control over their lives that they thought they didn't have, um, it's amazing. And I will do what works. And I really have invested a lot of time and energy and, and my finances in getting really good training uh, to really help people basically integrate themselves so that you're not sort of a disembodied head or a brain, you know, that you're working in, in sync with your um, emotions and your felt sense and your intuition and you being all of you when, you when you do anything. So I've been doing that and I think that um, my advocacy work, which I've always been interested in, um, it really came to fruition. Um, I, I tend to just follow what's happening and I, look, and I look to my clients for guidance. I don't really have so much of, I didn't really sort of have this sort of preconceived idea of what I was going to do. I look at the people in front of me and I'm like, oh my gosh, I seem to be missing something. I need to sort of drill down here or drill down here. And I really felt that um, a lot of, I wondered about what happened when people left me. Because when you're a therapist, you should really only treat them. I mean, one, you're treating basically a mental health disorder, okay? So when you've met certain treatment goals, you're done. And I am a proponent of, in general, I do meet people where they're at, and it's important that you pace yourself. That said, my style is to sort of be very direct and sort of help people move along. <laughs> you know, I, most of my clients discharge, I'd say on an average about five, five months, maybe even four months. We sort of get down to it. I do a good screening, but we get down to it and then they move along and my, my goal is so that they're not dependent on me, that um, I, I don't, I don't, I help guide them to heal, the healings within them. So I'm very much about not having an hierarchy in my sessions. But that said, I feel that once I treated lots of people, that it's not like they still didn't struggle with some things that are not technically within the purview, I think, of a, of a, of a therapist. So for me, I, have then sort of gravitated to a sort of more of a mentoring, guiding, coaching role to help people who really actually don't meet the criteria of having a mental health disorder, but need help, you know, encouragement, support, guidance. I've, um, some of my guidance is from lived experience, but also you do coach a little bit in therapy. I'm really taking that piece out and helping people um, in that supportive role. Uh, some people, for some people, they simply don't see options because, uh, well, they, they, just, they just don't connect the dots of what they see in a certain way. And it's very helpful if you have somebody maybe just literally sort of whispering in your ear, okay, do you see that over there? Do you see that over there? Okay, that's your issue. Okay, well, you're taking what somebody tells you, what they see, and you're helping them connect dots and helping them move. And then sometimes it really is that old fashioned um, coaching cheerleading role where you're um, I hate to say it's just inspiring, but you're reminding somebody of their strengths, perhaps, and uh, maybe giving them a tune-up 
to, to help them adjust their focus. Because there's a lot, um, a lot of what we do is about our mindset. But it's not just that. That's why, to be honest, I, I'm not sure if the word coach applies to me, because I think that a lot of moving ahead is also about being strategic. There is a reality that certain options are not available to some people because of their gender, um, their sexual preference, you know, or, or, or their color. And so I help find those little ways that people can still keep it moving and have access. Yeah, and that equal access piece is so key. And for anyone who maybe isn't as familiar, if you could break down a little bit of what intergenerational and racial trauma looks like and how that manifests for people and the, the really like deep ways that that can just create so many problems for people. And I also have so much respect for you, I have to say about, uh, for, for a large number of reasons, but especially because you really get to the root of it and you help people move forward in a relatively short period of time because there's so many uh, sort of more therapeutic approaches that are, are much more long-term than what you're talking about. And you seem to get results in a very, a relatively short, a very quick period of time. So I'd love to hear more about that. Um, my approach or, okay, I'll, I'll start. Yeah, because you, you'll, you'll remind me, hopefully. I know, I, um, I always get excited. I ask too many questions. You know what? And I get excited <laughs> and I'll be honest, sometimes I'm like, I'm not doing a good uh, way of uh, showing my, 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 my skill set. But no, I, you're I'm doing really a beautiful job. To, <laughs> to meet you. And there's so many things I want to talk about that we started talking about. But um, in terms of, um, well, so one of the things I did to sort of speed things up is um, I'm, I like collecting data, you know, and, uh, and I've always been about trying to find an efficient process to do things. I think some of that was born of the fact that I started my career off in law firms and they're very much about that billable hour, billable minute, you know, and so you, and I didn't want to sacrifice my personal life. So for me, it was about, okay, I've got a head. Let me think of a way to do this just quicker, you know, and just, I would, uh, I would bug everybody, I'd, I'd, you know, I talk to secretaries and, and anybody, you know, how do you do this? How do you do that? And just find ways of just shaving off time. So I'm very much about efficiencies and working smarter um, and not harder, uh, you know, if you can. And so I think that's something that's sort of instilled in me. And I just, I just saw, it just seemed that some people were in therapy forever. And I just thought, what are, what are they, they don't seem to be getting any better. I've seen and, that as well. Um, I feel like that's relatively common. Yeah. Yeah. Now that said, I really don't want to be too judgy, judgy. I have to admit, I'm a little judgy. I mean, who is it, right? <laughs> I, I tell her a little people, bit. People <laughs> always say that and then they're judgy, right? Exactly. <laughs> I do think there's a place, look, some people just, you know, they don't have anyone to talk to and they're really going to a therapist for validation. That's okay. As long as these things are clear up front, I'm coming for validation, my self-esteem is a bit low and I really need a pep talk. I don't tend to do that kind of therapy, that's why I screen people. I'm just, I'm happy to refer you. I, because I sort of feel with all my training, I really want to help people that, that are really struggling, right? Um, I don't want five people, I, there's only so many people I can see, right? And I don't want to see five people that, that I'm where I'm doing that. Oh, you know, I just, I think other people can do that. I, I'm not, I think they call it woo-woo. That's, we just, we just say it. <laughs> that doesn't suit your personality. You're much too action-driven, which I appreciate. Yes, I just, which doesn't mean I'm saying hurry up. No, 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 no. It's no, not no. like that. <laughs> but it's, I'm constantly saying, because I'm very much about intention in the moment. Like mindfulness is something I just love, right? It's, it's something I start all my clients with. What are we doing here? 
I always like to bring it back to what are we doing, right? So I think it's important for people to know, especially this, I, I'm not about wasting people's money either. You know, I think that's also something I bring to the table. I just, I just, I really, I wouldn't feel good about myself just sort of milking it, yeah. you know? So that's, it's also something that I do to hold me accountable. Not that I think that I need to, that I was going to milk people, but, but why are we here? You know, okay, you want to do this and you're struggling here. And what does that look like? Okay, you can't get up in bed in the mornings or whatever. So we come up with markers. What would your life look like if you were feeling better? And that's what we're aiming for. So when I discharge people, it's not like I'm looking at, oh, you know, we're at month four. It's just as we're going along and it's a collaborative process. Okay. Every now and again, I'm checking in. What did you say we were doing again? Okay. How is that looking for you? My, one of the things I'm often saying is that it's not about having a great session. Some people say that was a great session. I mean, that's nice. But you're not going into therapy, I think, to have a great session. It's to have a great life. Yeah. Right? You can have these spotty once every week, once every two week sessions for 15 minutes. So I, so I care about what does your life look like? You know? And so we have markers. What, what, is, what, what happened today? What didn't happen today? And I like to pinpoint that moment where you were struggling. Okay, now we're going to drill down and see what happened. So what I do to sort of increase the efficiency then is one, I've collected, I'm very much interested in every single client, what works, what doesn't work. And I have like a database, you know, in, in my head, but sometimes I write some things down, you know, um, of what, like, I don't want something that I, you know, introduce to not work. I think I'm also a bit competitive with myself as well. <laughs> so if something didn't work, I want to know why. I mean, not like that. I'm not going to say why. No, I'm going to, you know, obviously. From the data, um, basically. You know, I'm, I'm going to work with the client. We're really going to think about, huh, that didn't, that didn't work. Slow it down again for me. What happened? And then what happened? Okay, let's back it up a bit. And what were you thinking then? You know, so we pinpoint it and then we'll try different approaches. And one of the things I realize I'm very good at, um, I'm actually very, for a lawyer, I mean, I don't want to condemn lawyers, but we're very smart and we get things done. So I'm going to speak up for my people. <laughs> but, um, but we, but lawyers, we do tend to be very heady and analytical, but I realized that I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a rare creature because I'm, I'm, I'm two things. I'm very empath, what they call like an empath, you know, yeah. oh, by the way, I, I just really learned that word this year. I did. I didn't know what it was. I only but learned very, it like two years ago. So I'm not, I'm not. Yeah. 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 So I was, I was thinking, what was that? Is that some kind of psych? I didn't know what that was. It's just <laughs> like something, but you know, you still learn. Right. Yep. And so I just, um, I'm very much about picking up on the energy of people. And I've been very surprised that even though, um, my practice is now online, um, you, it still works. And I think part of that is um, we're fine-tuned to pick up on not just words, it's just a very small part of how we communicate, but our subconscious picks up on things like this, my hand movement, um, eye movement, little, little twitches. We're, we're, we're fine-tuned to sort of assess what that means. It's part of our survival mechanism. So there's a lot of information we get about someone, even if it's online and they're not sitting, they're not sitting in real life in front of you. So how did I get to this point? Connect some <laughs> dots again. Um, so I, that's part of what I bring to the table and trying to figure out um, a tailor-made, very specific um, process for this person sitting in front of me. 
You know, I want to know what would work for this person. So I use all my skills, what you told me, I'm going to analyze that, but also what I'm picking up on to sort of get a sense of what it's like to see life from your eyes and why something might have tripped you up. And so we come up with something and that's why I have worksheets don't really work for me because I've like 50,000 of, you know, because I'm like a worksheet for every person I dealt with. But um, I do have like a sort of a checklist of things and I'll add to that. And it's who, that's why I never what I do because people, are, there's some general things that they're saying because with the same sort of, you know, biological processes going on. But we're also different. There's always a twist because they're experienced or something, you know? And that's what I just love because it all goes into the big grand database of what makes somebody human. You know, and I'm, I'm just fascinated by that. I just, wow, that's, that's another thing about being human, you know? So I just, again, just sort of come up with a very specific sort of template for this person sitting in front of me. And that's what I'm constantly working on. And so you're go, it's sort of like a lab experiment, right? We're figuring out what's wrong. We're coming up with a sort of a, a strategy. You're gonna go out and see if it works for you. You're gonna come back and report. We're going to adjust it. And you're going to go back out again. And this is what I do in my therapy. And that's why I feel like it, it doesn't take forever because you, you're, you're working, but you're not, but, but this is what happens when you start feeling better. That's the hook. So I tried to do that from very early on from the first session. I tried to, uh, I, my sort of goal is that you leave with at least one skill that you a tangible concrete thing that you can get your arms around that you can use when you leave the session. And then you're going to come back and report to me, you know, and we're going to keep doing that. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So the only thing I measure my success from is, is, um, is, is when my clients basically tell me, you know, I'm, I'm ready. That's a beautiful way to measure it. Yeah. I mean, like what else? Like well, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's, that's what every, every therapist should want. That's what anyone should want is for somebody to feel better. And that's, that's a really positive sign. Um, talk to me a little bit about anti-racism in the mental health field specifically. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> where can I start? Where I know this is, it's a very broad question, but I want to let you take the lead on this. And like, what are, what are you kind of like most passionate about or what is coming up right now or has for you, uh, more recently where you're just really seeing either some parallels or some crossovers and some things that you want to address? Well, I'll speak to one thing right now and then we'll see where that leads. But one of the things that very, very much concerns me is in a lot of the very large um, community health organizations, it, they, I don't feel that they tend to be very efficient and the population tends to be um, disproportionately people that have, are from marginalized or oppressed groups. And what I see in there is, um, first of all, they tend to be very top heavy, right? So there's a lot of like, the, the very large ones, a lot of sort of managers. And I, I'll be honest, sometimes I'm not really sure what they do. There's a lot of paper and meetings and things like that. And then you have um, a lot of the responsibility for these procedures and this and that and the other uh, on the clinicians. And you'll find a lot of clinicians and agencies will talk about how little time they actually have for care and how much paperwork that they're doing, much of which seems to go nowhere. And as, um, and, and as a lawyer, I have that critical eye where I just think this is a lot of fluff and a lot of wasted time and people that actually don't have training um, to be managers and, and uh, leaders. In fact, I wouldn't, I wouldn't equate 
managers sometimes with leaders, not, not necessarily. That's why I, I place a, I do a lot of work training people um, to be leaders. I've actually been awarded for, uh, um, by, by a community for, for leadership and, and, and public service. So it's something I've actually done. It's not something I sort of thought that would be kind of neat. <clears throat> and I see a lot of um, just inefficiencies and, and styles of leadership that are questionable and they're very coercive and don't, and, and don't actually bring out the best in people. They're very limited, narrow ways of, um, of, of trying to get people to do things. And so what this results in is a lot of um, very overworked and taxed clinicians. I see that there's a serious problem they're lacking self-care. And, and if that's the clinician sitting in front of you, and plus they haven't really had, um, I've never attended a diversity training that was uh, helpful, or that I really thought was culturally competent. In fact, I thought there were, they sometimes did more harm than good because they had a lot of stereotypes in them. So you have people that are not necessarily uh, trained with cultural competency. I would say that social workers who do clinical work tend to have more training than most. I, 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 I suppose I shouldn't really, maybe that's just anecdotal. I don't really know about the curriculums of, of other people. So, so maybe I'll take back that judgy bit. But, um, <laughs> but, they, but, but I guess, well, you know, I am judging, you know, because I'm judging by what I observed. And I've been in a number of agencies. And, um, you know, when you, when you have any kind of color to you, sometimes they'll, they'll sort of assign everybody who's marginalized to you. And I know all the complaints. I know all the things that BIPOC individuals say that they don't tell white clinicians. And so that's why I'm saying that. And most, and most, there isn't a single person that's BIPOC in my practice right now that didn't have some complaint about going to a white clinician at some point. And by the way, some of these clinicians were very well-intentioned. And that, so part of that just sort of breaks my heart. There's a lot of people that tended to be mean or anything. They, they for one thing, they feel very uncomfortable about discussing racism. So they don't. And when they do, they sometimes wait for the client to bring it up, but you're talking about somebody who's vulnerable anyway, and they don't sort of also seem to realize that by the time you're seeing a BIPOC client, sometimes they have been through so many institutions and have such, have had their own bias. I won't actually say it's bias because when it comes to somebody who's marginalized, when you have to deal with um, the scorn the lack of access, the criticism, the demeaning ways that you're treated when you are trying to get benefits, for example, or anything like that. You, yes, you are very distrustful when you walk into a big mental health agency. For you, it's not a whole lot of difference, you know? And there, there are other ways sometimes people treat people who are on access, you know? Um, so all of that. So somebody sitting in front of you, they're not just gonna bring up race, you know? they're wary, distrustful. So if you're waiting for them to bring it up and you can't even assume that the way they're gonna bring it up is a way that's really terribly authentic either, okay? They may be very well gauging what you're doing. So you've got this sort of two-step, <laughs> if it's even brought up. So that's why I said there's, um, none of that's terribly helpful. And why is that important? Because how can you really treat someone unless you know all of them, what's going on, right? When people, one of the questions, I think it's rather a bogus question, but we ask it. I mean, I ask it just to see what it turns up, but I don't really, I don't really value it um, um, entirely. It's when, it's when I ask somebody, 
um, what's, what's going on or how they're feeling or something like that. Um, most people can't articulate that, <laughs> you know? You know, when you're troubled, whatever, you, you just, sometimes you just don't feel well, right? But so sometimes I, I just ask just to see how much you're struggling or what, or what just even, because it's usually, it's a somewhat triggering question. And so I can sort of see what's going on right in front of me. I can see something, okay? But I don't expect that, I'm not gonna take you at complete face value because some people don't know and a lot of times people have been misdiagnosed. So I'm saying when you've got all these other factors that I talked about and you don't get anything about somebody's background, you know, the fact that somebody didn't have transportation to come and see you may very well factor into their treatment. But if you don't know things to ask, okay, and you don't know about their entirety, you don't know, do they have extended family? What does that mean? Does it live with them? What, what, what does that support system look like? It might not be what you're used to, but you can't make assumptions. So when you don't really know about somebody, my thing is how can you really treat them? Because I have a very broad definition of well-being. It's one in which, I mean, well, a short way of saying it's where all of you can show up, right? And when I say all of you, mentally, physically, spiritually, culturally, well-being is a part of that. When you suppress part of who you are, you don't function well. For one thing, it takes a lot of energy to suppress who you are, okay? So I'm very much about people being able to show up um, in accordance with their potential. So I want to, one, help bring that out. Some people have no idea what their potential even was. I encouraged one person recently who was very depressed, uh, not a lot going on for her, to paint something, right? Something that was something that she could afford to do. She'd never painted before. She, her painting was so beautiful, it moved me. And I think that's what great, I, look, I'm no, I'm no artist, okay? I, I, I paint like somebody paint was using their left hand or their left foot, okay? But um, one of the things I think about art though, if I could sound very sophisticated, mm -hmm. is um, I, think it, I think good art moves you. It sort of taps into emotions. It's not just a pretty picture. It's like, oh, wait, I almost feel some emotion. Like, I'm feeling something there. And I think it's this wonderful thing. I love connection. I'm all about connection. So I love the idea that you can create something, and I don't even see you now. I can just show you my artwork. And the, the other person's just moved. You've communicated. You've connected in that way. This is a beautiful thing. That, to me, is almost spiritual. So this lady created something. And I thought, wow, she, she said, now she had a horrible family situation and, and she had a lot of eye rolls and tuts when she showed them her artwork. So she couldn't wait to show me. And I just, I mean, I, my face was showing what I felt. Can you imagine what that does for someone? You know, I mean, I can talk validation or we can do something where you feel it. And that, that just to me is, is a lot deeper. And so for me, it's about being creative. But also, I got enough of a background for her, even though she never said, you know what, I think I'd like to paint one day. She never mentioned painting. But I felt that way, creativity, I think there's something that it could bring something out in her. And so we came up with painting. And um, she loves it. And now she's even thinking about how she can better her financial situation. Um, painting, and that's something else I also do sometimes in, in my therapy, is um, I'm helping you a little bit with the, um, I don't just remove symptoms. Part of that process for discharging is um, because I think the symptoms take up a lot of space. So when we manage them or minimize them, there's a bit of a void there. 
I don't, I encourage people to have this goal because I don't want to say like I want to tell people, but I definitely encourage them. Um, I'm very much, I was a philosophy major, very much about meaning and purpose. Loved Viktor Frankl, read him when I was a kid. I'm about having people leave with some sort of idea of a journey, you know, and that they start it, that they have a vision. Because again, I don't think well-being is just the absence of symptoms. It's about being able to fulfill your potential. So I consider part of my therapy is helping to tap into that potential and giving you hope and this idea energizing you to get excited about doing something. How can that not be well-being? How could that not be well-being? So the stuff that I do that's not therapy is really just to maximize and drill down on that bit that, that really tends to only come sort of the finishing part of the final phase of, of my therapy. But I wanted to sort of pick up with that onwards. For many people, I help um, executives who just feel stuck and they don't feel, so sometimes they don't, they, they're having a hard time um, it's really an identity issue, right? When you're in corporate America, you have this idea of an identity, but it's not really them. So I do a lot of identity work, but being mixed myself, but also having lived in many countries, I've had to sort of, that's just the world I'm very, very comfortable with. So I see that sort of runs through my therapy as well. So a lot of my work that I try to drill down on, that's sort of not the therapy, is being able to formulate an identity and having a stable sense of yourself that you can maintain as you go out there and um, celebrate life. And, but it's not so done, because I don't believe that your identity is this sort of stuck status, like it's an event, you know, like I've got this identity and I, like I'm just gonna put it on the shelf now. No, I feel like you've got to live a little room. It's, it's imperfect. It's like this lovely piece of artwork we've done, but you haven't finished it yet, because we need room for growth, right? Curiosity. It's the other thing too, there's no, I feel like we're lacking in curiosity. Are people curious anymore? You know, like what's going on? I'm very curious. What's going Me on? Me too. You are this is why we get along so well. What are you doing? Yeah, I ask way too know? many questions. <laughs> well, because it's how we grow. Yes, exactly. Right? And because and, 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 this is another theme of mine is that we're so horrified by difference. Difference could be this, it could be that missing piece, people. Difference could be this thing that helps spark and energize you. Difference could be this thing, wait, I'm not, there's another way to do it. It can make me feel better. It's more efficient. If you just keep connecting with people that are just like you, how, I mean, it's, it's a little narcissistic at some point, right? A little yeah. vain. You know, there's a point where, yes, we all need validation, but at some point, enough already. Yeah. Right? At I some point, you have to just go for it, do something have a little bit uncertainty, humility, right? There's something about imperfection that I actually celebrate, which is funny how we started this call, just sometimes embracing it. It's, it's a relief, people. It's a relief just to be human, to not have to be over the top. I think we are living in a culture of perfectionism and got to and have to's, and I'm here to knock some of that down. What a beautiful perspective. I really appreciate that about you. That's really cool. It's liberating. Oh, it is. It absolutely liberating. is. It is. Oh, I have so many questions. Okay. I'm trying to think where I want to go next. Let's, let's talk about allyship because I know that you also have a workshop that we're going to reference in the show notes and everything else. Let's talk about what allyship means because 
I feel like when the George Floyd situation there it happened, there was this huge outpouring and now it was like all the white people were trying to be allies. <laughs> Not all of them, but <laughs> some of them. <laughs> and I think that while you were, you were talking earlier about, you know, good intentions, but that it doesn't necessarily always translate into the, the best possible way of doing things. And I think that there's a lot to learn here. And I would love to get your, your perspective on that and what allyship even really means and how to show up as an ally in sort of this all-encompassing way as opposed to performative allyship, let's say. Um, thank you. <laughs> so I'll be honest, allyship was uh, another one of those words that I never really used for this year. And one of the things that I struggle with is that if I don't use the words that people recognize, they won't know what I do. Right. And so I, I, I use them and I sort of had this crazy idea, I was going to use them. And then when, the, when I sort of build this community where they get it, then we'll drop the word. In fact, in, I have a Facebook group, Meaningful, uh, Meaningful uh, Allyship. <laughs> and I actually tell them in the description that we're just using this word for a bit and then we're not going to use it anymore because people would, how would they find me? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, okay, so this is my thing about allyship. Um, well, what, besides for not really knowing what it is, and yes, some people also use the term co-conspirator, but that sounds a bit... That like, sounds oh, dodgy. Yeah, yeah, imagine, yeah. I don't to <laughs> myself a conspirator. I just... It's, it sounds like somebody's trying to commit I, murder. Like, that's just, that sounds I, I know, really sketchy. I, I'm like, you can come up with something else. I mean, that's why I'm like, look, I'll stay with allyship, at least... Because I don't mean... What, okay, so what is an ally? I think you can't be an ally, you see, in a vacuum. An ally is part of a relationship, so you have to be attached to someone. Who are you attaching to? And my, I guess part of my problem with it is that, did you, did you check with them about what you're going to be like? You, like, you're just, it's like there's a lot of work on this side. We're going to ally, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and we're going to do this, that. And like, who, Checklist. Like, who likes that? Yeah. I mean, don't you have to check with, do you, what, would you, what would you like? <laughs> do you even need me? So there, there seems to be a disconnect. And I, see, I saw a lot of allyship over here and a lot of, a lot of BIPOC individuals over here just looking at them. And so it seemed a bit, and a lot of book clubs and reading. And my impression was that it's almost like people were taking this thing like it was a term paper. We're going to do a lot of research. We're going to get some footnotes and we're going to read and we're going to discuss it. And I got a lot of flack on Instagram because people were like, well, I think it's really helping. Okay, look, I've only been doing this for decades. <laughs> who are you helping? Like, you can't just do it. I just didn't know who they were helping. They feel better, but you're just reading some books and you're just reading the books that people told you to read and that are on the Not all the books to read are on Amazon, people. So it just seemed a bit reactive and, and not very strategic. And what I hope you sort of realize by now, I'm, I'm, I'm strategic. I'm like, what do we do? Like, not wasting energy. You can't, you're going to burn yourself out just reading all these books. And then, and then what are you going to do with the book? Then what are you going to do? What, what, well, I'll tell you what people do. Then they go to Facebook and they have lots of arguments. And then sometimes they just they go to Facebook and they're just in a group with just each other. Well, I don't know. On paragraph eight, on page 20, he says, and then she's, how's that helping? <laughs> okay, so that, that's my take on that. So I'm very much about being strategic and being focused, and if it's not tied to action, I don't, I don't like, 
I don't know, go write a different term paper then or something. I just don't think it's very helpful, you know? Um, it also like just felt like, like five minutes of action in terms of book reading and stuff compared to hundreds of years of this going on and it being ignored. But, you know, we feel better if we read the book, so everything will be fine. And so, there was a yeah. lot of like, and there still is, there's a lot of, of crossed wires happening there that is not working well. And people that put up squares, they never did anything after that. And then also when they put the squares, they didn't realize that they blocked everybody. <laughs> and then they Yes, that's you. Yeah. It just, it, it, again, it wasn't very strategic. It wasn't well thought out. It was emotional and reactionary. Mm -hmm. And so I'll just go for it. I think the reason for a lot of the reaction is because race and topics of that and the discussion of racism, it triggers identity issues. Because basically race, so this is so one of the things that I do in my workshops is I, ma I marry my perspective as a, as, a, as a therapist who treats racial trauma and a lot of minorities, whether or not they have trauma, with my advocacy work as also as an attorney and my understanding of, of a legal framework. So I provide a framework for people to um, understand what's going on because one of the things I, I think that is happening is that racism triggers identity issues see that's what i see and what do i mean by that because the whole discussion is very binary and race itself is a construct it has no biological basis so whenever you talk about black because of a binary sort of setup then you've got white so because people it's a number of things going on and i'm simplifying it a bit but because you think in a binary way and there's reasons for that when people bring up <laughs> racism so if you're not that then you must be oh gosh no I can't be it just leaves white and white must be racist and people people are reacting to that because it's horrifying to a lot of people so they're so what do a lot of people do you, you panic you want to do something you certainly don't want to just contemplate it because there's nothing for them to contemplate they they're not going anywhere with that because they don't they've really discuss it so they don't really know what to think they're just left with that horrible label so what they I think they're doing is scrambling out of a label and it's amazing how many people came to me and they were like look can I get some coaching one-on-one -on -one? and by the way I didn't accept coaching one-on-one -on -one with anyone because I just didn't think it was going to be very helpful and I felt though people were well-intentioned it's almost as though they really wanted me to rubber stamp they weren't racist and I wasn't going to do that I, I didn't necessarily think that they were but I I just what are you doing, <laughs> right? I, I'm not like, I'm just gonna sprinkle some kind of holy water and announce that you're not racist. I just, what I can do is teach you about what's going on and I'm going to have you focus on action and help you. Because when you are, you have to understand it, then to know what you to do to get rid of it. The ego, and, I feel like plays a big role here because- What's that? The ego, I feel like plays a big role oh. here because we, we want that guilt like a laid. So someone take this guilt away from me and then I'll feel better about myself as a human because I hired someone of color to walk me through this. And I feel like that's kind of what's happening as opposed to, again, like what you're talking about strategy, like long-term, how are you going to show up and change and grow and ask more questions and learn all these things over the long term, not over the next four to six weeks. It's <laughs> that, that can't be how it works. <laughs> yeah. And you know, what's, what was disheartening to me is that about 20 years ago, Okay, start that dating clock. Um, <laughs> I, I must have been about three. Um, we had the, the, the Rodney King civil unrest. 
And so one of the things that I, that struck me is just very odd. People were coming up to me, and this is when I, I lived in Los Angeles, and I hadn't lived there very long. I think I only lived there about months. And people were coming up to me who'd lived there their whole lives. And they were saying, what, what's going on? You're asking, how would I know what's good? How would I know any more than you do about what's going on? I thought that was just very bizarre. I just thought that was very strange. But this is the thing. I took myself down to um, the communities where they were having the civil unrest, down to Compton. And I learned for myself what was going on. You know, and I helped put together, um, I, I got different people um, that I had access to together. And, and um, one of the things that I heard was that they, people, I didn't know there was a lot of predatory lending in that area and people couldn't get loans. People just assumed, well, why don't people just do this or do that? They didn't have access to things that people just assume, take for granted. So I, and uh, I remember there's this one elderly gentleman who was like, listen, I want to work, but I, I'm old and I just don't have the education, but I want to work. And so I thought, what if we could put together a job training center? You know, so I talked to a number of different businesses and I talked to people in the community. I talked to so-called leaders. I say that because they would, they would know where to be found when I was doing all this work, I'll, I'll be honest. And I really got an, a, a front row view of what politics is like and getting things done. But I honed my leadership skills. And anyway, I put together, um, I had access to uh, tax attorneys. And, I, and so what I did is uh, I was strategic about it, presented things in a sort of a win-win kind of way. And we put together a, a 501c3 job training center where people could get jobs and they could learn. And I got the businesses to train people and then they hired them, you know? Um, and I'm not, there was none of that that I was an expert in. I knew none of those pieces. I will tell you though, what was very disheartening, I did all of that. Um, I got an award, um, it, it was televised, it was a big to-do. And then when my company got notice of it, they called me because I did, they, I, my company, I worked for utility at the time, they had a plot of land that they weren't using. And that was part of my thing was like, well, wait a minute, what if uh, they could donate that land? Uh, they were trying to get rid of it actually. So that's, that was part of the win-win. But anyway, when I put this whole thing together, it was running, I got called into the office of a senior attorney, right? Um, and who was white? And uh, there was another senior attorney who was known for his butterfly connection because while everyone else was working, he, would, he had this whole butterfly collection on his desk and he was always doing that. Yeah, that's what he did. Okay. He's sitting there and I'm thinking, what, on what he's here for, right? And I was told, this is what I was told. I'll never forget this. I was told, you've done a great job. You've done a great job. But you know, it's getting a little um, difficult now. And it really is time for somebody more senior to really handle this. I mean, basically, they're just going to, I mean, I can't put it any plainer than that. I've, I've done it now. It's running. And now, now that it's gotten publicity and everything, you're literally taking it away from me and you're giving it to someone who has no, has no clue about it. And by the way, someone who's not known in the office for being, you know, a very, uh, What's the word I could fill in there? <laughs> I was just trying to think of the right word. Yeah, I know. There's so many words that I was thinking. Yeah, so there's many. There's so many good ways to go. You know, conscientious. I'll just stick with conscientious. We'll attorney. go with that. Sure. Yeah. It was, it was an okay guy. But the thing yeah. is, is that, look, this is the part that it turns my stomach. 
it turns my stomach, that kind of thing. Because first of all, you're a nice guy. We talked every day. Look, I didn't mess with you in your butterfly connection. I didn't get close to that. I'm not a big fan of butterflies. I think they're beautiful. But when I get up close, <laughs> they're like moths, aren't they? And I'm like, oh, they've yeah. got, they're, they're insects with pretty wings. So anyway, so I, I just thought, how do you do that? How? I, I would never, never. My own pride takes somebody's work and one in any way pass it off on my own. I just, I couldn't, you couldn't get me to do that. I'd be like, wait, and, and but even if you, if I did it inadvertently because you put me on someone's project and I realized it wasn't mine. One of the things I was raised with is that you give somebody credit, right? So how you could just do that and then sit, how do, I was thinking, what is that process where you both thought, let's see if we can get away with this. By the way, do I look like a fool? I put that together. Do you think like I'm an idiot? How did, how did you think I was just going to buy that? So I didn't, and I mean, I spoke, but they still took it away. What can I do? It's my employer, right? So, okay, this is the part that I don't teach in my workshop because I'm not going to say that, I'll, but I'm not perfect. Did I mention that? I'm not perfect. So what a, I just became passive aggressive, pissy, right? Because um, this gentleman kept coming into my office and uh, he didn't know how to do anything. Uh, how did you do this? What was that? So I just threw it back, wait a minute. And I just kept quoting what they told me. See, that's the kind of person I am though. Like I, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to waste my energy fighting it. There was, there was nothing I could do. Where, where I, I just, I was, I, one of the things is to know when you're outgunned. But sometimes I say, wait to fight another day. Don't forget it, right? Just wait, right? But screw it somewhere. You can't let things eat you up, okay? But then I was really not going to let it eat me up. I wasn't going to help him. Oh, then you could just fire me. I, I don't have, you have to be prepared sometimes to walk from a job. I do prepare my clients from that. Sometimes you have to decide how, how much you value your dignity. And I value mine highly, right? So it, it pretty much was done. I don't know what they thought they were going to do. I mean, because the, the, the training center didn't need me to sort of just keep poking my head in, you know? And I never claimed I was, I mean, I'm not a teacher. Right, so I wasn't gonna, I mean, not with what with stuff they were teaching, you know? So it, it, you know, I just moved on to something else, but I noted, and of course I charted my course to get out of there <laughs> and find a different job. So I'm okay with that. But, um, you know, that, that's the game that you play sometimes. But um, actually I, I did well. I plotted my own course to get out of that department and get a higher salary and do what I needed to do. So. The, um, again, I wasn't going to waste energy on that. And that's one of the things that I do talk about a lot. That's the name of the game. You only have so much energy and so many hours in a day. And you'll want to put that energy towards goals that suit you. You know? And again, that comes back to intentionality, right? What is it? What is, so I'm big on scheduling. You know? I think you Americans call it scheduling. Scheduling, yes. <laughs> I just, that just doesn't sound right okay i love american everything but some of your language is messed up i'm just going to tell you well so, see, i'm actually canadian so i also oh, think that some american language we do share some but others i'm like no no you're saying that wrong <laughs> oh really yeah like, i don't hear your accent i a lot of people say that but every once in a while somebody's like yeah, I, I hear i hear it i'm like what is it i don't know i don't know what i say that sounds canadian but yeah <laughs> okay um yeah so i i can't remember what i'm talking about 
Well, yeah, I mean, we we're talking about, about allyship and stuff, but I feel like this also ties in with, and, and I don't want to keep you for too long because we've already been talking for a while and I, I want to respect your time, but um, critical race theory. I would love to touch on that briefly with you because since you've already mentioned, you know, like these Instagram posts and stuff that are popping up about everything and breaking things down and, and, and that's, that's great. And it's, it's a really beautiful step in the right direction for education for anyone who's not looking to educate themselves elsewhere. That can be a good start, but it kind of just barely skims the surface. So you have such a unique perspective with your, your background and your educational training. I would love to hear your perspective on what critical race theory is about. Um, so critical race theory was founded by uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and um, my professor, Derek Bell. Um, and what it really was was trying, one, one of the ways which it came about was, um, this was after the 60s then, and it was seen that, um, the, you know, you could only get so much um, impetus with the, there was only so much you could, headway you could make with protests. So they really wanted to sort of figure out, you know, um, a, a different way of uh, tackling um, racism. And so there are basically three, uh, not sure if I counteract, maybe three or four basic principles when it comes to critical race theory. One is that it rejects the idea that we live in a meritocracy. By that, it just means it's really getting at the access issue, that not everybody has access. So whereas a meritocracy might be the ideal, and I don't think anybody's disputing that, that it should be an ideal. And I think that's where there's a lot of confusion. Some people, um, again, I think it's binary thinking. Just because you're critiquing something doesn't mean that you want the opposite or you're totally rejecting it. So I think that's, even before you get to like critical race theory or discussions of racism, you have to have this idea of like a framework and what you're talking about. And not only that, it's, it's, I actually heard a reference recently that it was a movement. It's not a movement, it's a theory. So before you even understand critical race theory, you have to understand theories. <laughs> I'm sorry, sometimes I feel that this is kind of basic stuff. And um, I don't mean to sound elitist, but when you have people in so-called leadership positions where they don't really have training, I don't really know what, we have to have common understandings about what we mean by leader. Right. So I guess that's, there's just so many assumptions when you're having these discussions that you can't really have the discussions because people think they know what they're talking about and people can't really connect because they're talking about different things. So I just need to say that as a caveat, but that that's one principle of critical race theory. Um, another one is that, uh, which I sort of briefly mentioned is that things get done when there's interest convergence. That's not earth shattering. I mean, I think that's something that people can resonate with, right? So that's also just a strategic way of approaching things. If you want something to happen, find the win-win for everyone. A lot of lawyers. I was also, I was a contracts, a business attorney. So I did a lot of negotiating. So that's that kind of mindset, okay? That you have a win-win. I was very good at negotiating and I really enjoyed it, but my approach was a win-win. Don't have to go in and smash the other side. I don't think that's, that, that's not the only way to go. Okay. And it's not the way that I do things. So, um, as I mentioned, even in my therapy, it's collaborative, you know, it's not me here and I'm telling you and all that type of thing. So that's another part, uh, principle. 
And another one is the idea that race is a construct. It's a legal and social construct and doesn't have any biological basis. See, actually, I think these principles are things that people may have heard and they're actually familiar with, but they don't actually know that it's critical race theory. I've heard a lot of people um, distort it. And this is why, this is another reason why I do my workshops is to educate people because when you're running out to do allyship and you're misinformed or you hear something or you just read it on an, on an Instagram post and you don't know where it came from, you don't know the roots of it and you don't understand it, you can sometimes do more harm than good. And so some people, because they don't handle their emotions well and they're not well informed, they, I, I do think they are sending out messages, which is sort of like white people did this and, and, and you're to blame. Well, first of all, who would receive that message? It's not terribly helpful. And I, I don't even think it's accurate, you know? Um, and at the end of the day, I think it's about moving forward and what we can do in terms of, of accuracy. Um, there is some blame and I think there'll be evident where that is. And there's no point even going there unless people can be accountable. Okay. But again, I'm about getting things done. And sometimes you don't have to just sort of bite off the whole enchilada, right? I'm always butchering my sayings, but, but I'm sort of take a bite-sized piece then. Do the bit that you can manage in your world. And like I said, we could have a huge impact on racism if we really just focus on inclusivity and access. Now, when I do that, I don't have to take out anybody. I don't have to denigrate anybody that's white. And as I mentioned too, also, I'm mixed. So some of the rhetoric out there, to be honest, one of the reasons I do this and I work for allies is that I find some of the rhetoric offensive. It's offensive to me, you know? And I am a BIPOC. I'm actually each letter of BIPOC, you know? And so I feel that, well, if I don't say it, then who? But I'm not going, but even though I said that, part of, one of the ways in which racism endures is that it fosters um, this sort of diversiveness among different people. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you're not gonna lure me into that. You know, for me, I feel that I can do the work that I do without putting somebody else down. How liberating it would be if people could do that. You don't, taking somebody out and making somebody feel awful doesn't mean that you're a really great anti-racist activist. It doesn't, you know, uh, but I did want to say as a placeholder, this understanding of racial trauma, you know, understanding and holding space for the fact that some people, if you've been relentlessly exposed to oppression for generations, if you do, you live in fear, you are preoccupied with finding spaces of safety, okay? That person is not in the same position as you. And yes, they may be reactive. That you asked a little bit about racial trauma, and I'm not excusing bad behavior, but I am saying recognize trauma for what it is. I don't, we live in a country that sort of tends to shield itself from ugly things, including mental illness. There's a lot of stigma attached to it. People don't talk about it. So if you don't talk about it, you don't know the signs or you tend to blame people for their symptoms, you know? If we could live in a culture that really encouraged people to get treatment for mental health symptoms, the way they do physical symptoms, because it's all about your well-being, right? Um, I think that would go a long way. And um, I think there are a lot of people that have been, you know, suffering intense and um, 
you know, I just think maybe it's not to be understanding of that when you're approaching somebody, maybe a BIPOC that's been, a lot of people have been very, very triggered by what's happening right now. They're disproportionately affected by COVID. Um, and this is probably, I will say this, this, this could be other people as well. People tend to be sort of reactive right now. If we could just maybe keep that in mind. Um, I'm not sort of a kumbaya. I do think there's some accountability. Um, if you've been sitting on your privilege, yes, I will say that some people live in a bubble and they have no idea how other people live. I, I mean, and so you feel a way when you come out of the bubble. I mean, I'm not really sure where the, where, what people want, you know, which is, I mean, for me, my empathy goes to the person that doesn't have. I'm not going to sit there and talk to you about your bubble and how awful it was for you that you realized that you were in one. I mean, that's called centering. It's a bit narcissistic. I'm just saying, okay, so you're in a bubble. All right, now that you're out of it, what are you going to do? Let's well up our sleeves and get, and get working. But to just go on, on and on and have a pity party about it, it's not healthy <laughs> and not helpful. Not even to you. So I guess that's sort of my position on it. But um, a lot of people are saying a lot of things, and it's true. There's a lot of defensiveness going on. But I also see that as a trauma response. You know, I, I, do, th I do think I can hold space for some people having being in somewhat shock in terms of their identity you know that this affects many many people all sides in terms of their identity who they thought they were and what that means but one of my responses and why i do a lot of work with identity is that look it's um it's an evolving thing it's an emerging thing your identity it's not static you can create who you want to be and you'll do that through your acts Oh, Mira, I could talk to you all day. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I just, I, I've already learned so much from you just from this conversation oh. alone. Where can everyone find you and connect with you and get hooked up with your allyship workshop, all of, all of those things. And obviously everything will be listed in the show notes as well, but I want to make sure. Everyone Thank goodness. Because uh, I, I did, uh, <laughs> if I was, I guess if I was that strategic and organized, I'd have it sitting in front of me. But this is the time of COVID everybody. It doesn't always go the way you like. I have a website called racialtraumacoaching.com and you people can find me there just go on the contact form there and find me there um, there's also a facebook page called racial trauma coaching and my instagram handle is racial trauma coach <laughs> not, not terribly creative here do you see a theme <laughs> No, that's, hey, that's branding. That's, <laughs> you were known as that. But the thing is, it's not all I do. And so I, it's I not, no. Thought, that's one of the reasons why I was doing the coaching. I was thinking I needed to come up with a way to describe myself because I've sort of, look, I, I do lots of things and this is one of them, you know, but um, I, I go where I feel like I can do the most help. Yes. And also just what catch, catches my interest, to be honest. Um, who knows? Next time we might be talking about my pancakes. Hey, I'm fine my, with that too. My, my horrid pancakes. <laughs> and maybe you can explain to me how to actually make them well. Yeah. So that's um, that's all I have right now. And I think oh, I actually have a. Um, I'm going to do this again, but in the in about five minutes, I I'm I'm trying the idea, but I um I've called it different things because again I need help with that branding thing, but um, I thought it'd be interesting. I, I wasn't going to do this initially help people with their Facebook posts, but so many people bring it up and that's where they want to go. I want to give people a framework for handling, because I do think there's, um, we can do a lot of work um, 
projecting a narrative that's healthy. Oh, that was the fourth principle of critical race theory was the narrative. I knew I forgot one. Um, <laughs> It's about having a narrative that racism is kept in place by racist narrative. So you counter that by having a positive narrative. So I um, help people with that narrative. And what I encourage them to do is to bring me their ugly Facebook posts that they're struggling with. Okay. And we'll process them together and I'll help you come up with a way that's satisfying, that conserves your energy, right? But makes certain points. And I'm also going to help you with strategy so you know when to get the heck out of there. Because too many people are having arguments and trying to win them, and I'm not sure what you're trying to do. That's just a waste of time. That's so I'm going to help them do that. And I call it social media maven. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah, how to be Very a social nice. media maven. I love it. Okay. I also call it some other things, but that's the one I've settled on. So <laughs> you're you so multi-talented, me... Mira. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So if somebody tries to find me, I'll, I'll post like a link and they can just meet me and we'll do that. Or I'll just do a Facebook Live. Haven't quite figured that out. Perfect. Okay. Thank you so much. And I just have one super quick question I'm just going to wrap up with. If you could give people one piece of advice on growing into the best possible version of themselves, what would it be? Ooh. Take a deep breath and reflect back on a childhood memory where you were happy and just hold that and hold into that, tap into that. Because I think for a lot of people, that's definitely a time when they could say they were their truth selves. And if you could just tap into that and how that feels and what comes up. That is, I think, my most favorite answer I've ever gotten to that question. And I ask it of every guest. That's beautiful. Thank you. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I would have panicked and said something else. <laughs> no, I love it. I love your answer. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much, truly. And, and you, we went way over time. I'm so appreciative of your time, your effort, your energy. Thank you so much for coming on, Mira. <laughs> Thank you so much, Emily. So much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. It means the absolute world to me, and I'm so grateful. For any references in the episode and all show notes, be sure to jump over to roomtogrowpodcast.com. And if this episode touched your heart, it would mean so much if you would take a quick second to hit subscribe, write a review, and share on social media or with someone who really needs to hear today's message. It makes such a difference to keep this podcast going so I can continue to bring you amazing content and absolutely incredible guests. Be sure to tag me over on Instagram at Emily Goff Coach so that I can thank you in real time for listening and connect with you. We're back every Tuesday and Thursday with new episodes and I'm looking forward to growing with you.